Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It's truly my pleasure to welcome one of the great leaders of American Jewry, but not just American Jewry, of World Jewry, Dr. Malcolm Honline. Uh, Malcolm Honline is a person who was once described as the king without a crown, but the reality is he's a person who has changed the face of World Jewry through his advocacy going back to the days of Soviet Jewry then into the JCRC in New York, and for more than 35 years, his involvement as the executive vice president of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. It is an honor and a privilege. And I have to say one more thing about Malcolm before we go too far into it. It is also an absolute Kiddush Hashem working with him, because as he stands with presidents and prime ministers and kings and, every, and queens, He's always standing there with a kippah on his head. He's always representing not only the Jewish community, but a Jewish community of tradition as well. So Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure and it's great to have you in the President's Conference and to be with you today. Thank you so, so much. I, when we had set up this date, things seemed kind of calm in the world. Uh, there only seemed to be one threat. And today we're facing Iran once again. We're facing Hamas in Gaza. We're facing a an administration that we're not 100% sure how it's going to handle things, but I have a feeling they're not 100% sure. And we're also facing a rise in anti-Semitism in America. Uh, so those are basically the things I wanna learn from you. Uh, but before we do so, how did you get into this business? I know when you were in college, it's written that you already had started this kind of advocacy. You grew up in Philadelphia. How did you get started doing all of this? Well, the truth is uh, that this was all predetermined for me. And I know that it wasn't my decisions or my talents. I never looked for a job in my life. Everything happened to me. But from the time that I was 10 years old, I got involved in politics, uh, living in Philadelphia, getting involved in races, and even through my years in Yeshiva in Philadelphia and afterwards. And I did my doctorate in international relations at Penn and taught at Penn because I wanted to have the best possible credentials to do what I cared about most, which was the Jewish people and Jewish state. And, and I understood from an early age that, that Jews had to be able to determine their own fate. They couldn't live at the sufferance of others. So we had to develop the clout and not see politics as a pejorative or something beyond our reach, but to, to be able to master it and particularly expressed in the Soviet Jewry movement, which I joined as a teenager and started the activities in Philadelphia, which eclipsed the events in New York, uh, regrettably. And then we, they brought me to New York to start the conference in Soviet Jewry in New York, which then organized the big demonstrations. And we played a, a role in, uh, in, in bringing about the outcome that we all share. Uh, and I, I think that that was an expression of never again that that wasn't to be a hollow phrase, but a pledge that every generation, particularly ours, had to take after the Shoah to show that we learned the lessons of the past, that we were not gonna be the Jews of silence. Eloise L's book about Russian Jews, they were not the Jews of silence, they were the Jews who were kept silent. We were the Jews of silence. And in the aftermath of the Six Day War and the heroism of the Russian Jews, we were able to mobilize and bring the whole community together into a movement, not an organization and proved once again that the key to every great miracle throughout our history, from when we stood Kishachad, Belay Machad, to the story of Purim, Hanukkah, everything, 
one precondition Akadosh Baruch Hu sent, and that was Achdut of Klai Yisrael. That's why I worked in umbrella organizations my whole life, not because it's easy, it isn't, but I really believe in Klai Yisrael. So picking up on that and moving backwards on the topics, we've seen this rise in anti-Semitic actions in the United States around the world. And one of the great challenges, which I've seen different than I remember the Soviet Jewry movement or all of the other things, is the response of American Jewry seems to be a bit tepid. It doesn't seem to have the same passion that we had for some of those other things that you were involved in creating. Am I misreading it? Is it a different world that we, we don't know how to deal with? It's definitely a different world. Uh, there was a world in the aftermath of World War II where it wasn't politically correct to express anti-Semitism publicly, even though the hatred was there. You know, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, I think it was, Atzal, who said, Dar Vidar, you mean, that as we say in the Haggadah, every generation, it wasn't a single generation where they weren't Omdi Maleno, they didn't stand against us. And he said, read the next paragraph, Lavan Bikishla Kars, I called it. Yaakov Avinu thought it was quiet and all the time they were plotting. So generations especially for 50 years after the Shoah, we thought anti-Semitism was down. We see now the cancer is there. It's metastasizing. It's coming in more and more virulent ways. Uh, and one of the things I tell people is we, we, the one thing you can't educate is passion. And we have failed our kids. We don't educate them from the youngest age, meaning kindergarten on. We have to educate our children. It's not enough to send them a birthright when they're 18. And frankly, it even applies to yeshiva-educated kids. They don't know. They can't stand against professors on their campuses. They're intimidated when it comes to the challenges. I don't believe in the 60 years that I've been involved in Jewish communal life that we had a time like this when we had this panoply of issues and of challenges. This anti-Semitism was predictable. I talked about it many years ago because you learned from the lessons from Europe. England, for instance, is a model for what happens here. We saw the BDS, we saw the many of things that starts there, comes here, the collapse of the political center. We see the radicalization of the political structure in America. So yes, we have a, a lot of issues. It, there are a, There is a lot going on, much more than people think because the media does not give pro-Israel activities any coverage. It's not interested in it. They are interested when you see roving gangs of pro-Palestinians going around being up people or engaging in you know, the violent activities, which we do not do. Uh, and you know, what part of the problem is that we succeeded. We rescued Russian Jews, Ethiopian Jews, Syrian Jews, Yemeni Jews, Iraqi Jews. We don't have the causes that can mobilize young people. And I regret that they don't have the experience of a Soviet Jewry movement. And I, I say always that Soviet Jews saved more of our children than we saved of theirs because it became a cause that every young person, no matter how alienated and older people could relate to. We have to find that passion again. You know, the, the saying that the, the poet it was asked when he saw a building on fire, what would you save? He said the fire. We don't have the fire in, in our young people and it's because of our failure to educate, to motivate, to give them and find some means of expression that they relate to. We have to be much more effective on the internet. We have to go to where they are, talk to them in a language that they can uh, understand and can relate to. And on that list of, of challenges that we face, anti-Semitism, the rise of anti-Semitism, Iran, even, the, even what's happening in Israel today, what should be at the top of our concerns? Anti-Semitism is certainly a primary concern because it has immediate physical 
implications as we've seen my own community there were several incidents last Shabbos so we've seen around the country 80% increase probably in the last month um, 100% increase in Europe and uh, much more virulent more organized than anything that we have contended and it's from the left it's from the right it's from Islamists it's coming from a lot of different sources so and that requires really a collective approach no organization can do it alone no community can face it alone we have to work on it together, building coalitions with non-Jews who are prepared to stand up as they were for Soviet Jews, but we had to be there first. We had to create the vehicles for them to do it. Second, Iran is a pervasive threat. It's not just Iran directly, even its nuclear program, the support for Hezbollah, Hamas, Houthis, their activities throughout the Middle East, trying encircling Israel as they have claimed just yesterday again. Uh, the more advanced weaponry, conventional weaponry they're developing, the undermining of regimes that signed the Abraham Accords, and of course, continuing to threaten Israel. And that's the lesson we learned from the Shoah. Take the threats of dictators seriously. They tell the truth. Leaders of democracies lie, but dictators tell you what they're going to do. You just have to hear it. So Iran is, is number two. But the biggest threat, which we learned from the midst of Hatel, from Moshe Rabbeinu, and Moses taught us the greatest dangers are not external wars or enemies. It's indifference and apathy and ignorance in the Jewish community. And today we have an ignorant generation. We have a generation that leans towards apathy. And our studies show that even young people not affiliated have moved not so much to hostility, but indifference. For that, for us, that is a total loss. We cannot afford to lose our own. And we also have to work at the same time to rebuild the coalitions with other groups. So when you speak of that apathy, that that's pervasive, not just in the non-Orthodox world, the non-traditional, in the Orthodox world. I, first of all, I see many of the younger, my younger students or a college age who um, buy into woke, wokeness or to liberal uh, ideas. Their professors, even before they get there, the professors don't even have to work very hard at it. Does this mean that we really have to relook at all of our education and elementary, secondary, yeshiva, the chadarim? You know, on one hand, we have the right who have the, the, the advantage of being insular, but you're never going to be able to escape. And then we have the center, which is more open, but when you get open, you're, you're attacked in more ways. How do we, how do we really do, deal with that apathy? We don't have the... We don't have the Six-Day War. We don't have, for the generation before me, the 48s. We don't have all of those things. So this is a profound question, uh, one we wrestle with all the time. And uh, one is to get the right spokespeople that can at least get their attention. Uh, you know, Judaism uniquely, as you certainly know, puts emphasis on schira, on remembrance. There's no Hebrew word for history. Tzchira is a dynamic process. Our Chazal understood that experience was the best teacher. So many of our Chagim are meant to be experiential because we experience the past. We live in an age that's trying to erase history. Not, it was a period of distorting history. Now they want to erase history, rewrite it, deny Jews the connection to Israel. And when I see young people, even from young people, asking me these questions about that they have their own doubts, it's, a, it's okay to question. But when they doubt fundamentals, and it shows that it's a failure in our educational system, I ask many times principals and rabbim, why don't you talk about the discoveries in Israel, the archaeological discoveries? You want kids to be excited? 
show him the bell of a coin gadol, show him the sword of a Roman soldier going after Jews, show him a rock or carved a menorah. You can't argue with that. You can't argue with the bedrock of a mountain. And 20,000 discoveries a year, everyone consistent with Tanakh. I jump out of my skin when I get that call on, on an Arab Shabbos, tell me, you won't believe what we discovered, what we found. And I tell it to people and they go, you know, that's really interesting, really interesting. But when I do it on my radio shows, which are nationally syndicated, the non-Jews go crazy about it. They're so excited about it. And it, because it confirms the Bible but and confirms history. So for us, history is not about the past. It's about the future. Our kids don't know the past. They don't know how to face the future. So we have to do more to empower them, to activate them, to mobilize them, to educate them, to be able to be able to face these challenges. They're going, these are generational challenges. It's not going away. And I worry very much about the world of my grandchildren and what they're going to face and will they be prepared for it? And they grew up with it. So they're aware and more than most others, but uh, I am very worried about it. And I think that yes, it requires honesty on the part of our institutions to face it. This demonization of Israel in inside the community, let alone outside. When rabbinical students sign a letter uh, from reform uh, seminaries, you know, attacking Israel, undermining it in the middle of a war and, and taking these outrageous positions, there's something wrong. And, and we have to be honest enough to face it. And there has to be a process of, of ostracizing the, the Peter Barnards and the others who undermine and go against the security of the state of Israel and the security of the Jewish people. We cannot tolerate it. And you are one of the great leaders of the organized community and you're an observer of all of the things that have been happening in America. Do we have those organizations who can transform the way we teach our children? Collectively, just as our enemies today attack the collective Jew, the state of Israel, but they mean each of us. And nobody should think that they mean the Zionists or they mean those Jews. The lesson of history is that they always find some way to make, well, I don't mean all of you, I mean those. No, they mean all of us. And you see it clearly when he says he wants to destroy Israel, I want to destroy the Jewish people. Those proclamations tell you the truth. And we have to, to understand and get people to understand that it means them and us. But I don't want young Jews motivated because of the negatives. I want to show them the positives, the beauty, the, to be proud of Eretz. Look at the amazing accomplishments this little dot on the map has done. All the high tech, everything that they are now water independent, energy independent. Everybody predicted the isolation of Israel. Now you see the Abraham Accords held up even during the war and, and it's expanding. And I'm talking to governments. Many more want to have this relationship. So there are positives that we have to to give our young people to, to motivate them. There are a lot of organizational capacities, but they have to be done in a unified way. No one alone can do it. We have to show that the whole is far greater than the sum of the parts. And we have one faith. It doesn't mean we dismiss differences. We can respect differences at the same time, show overwhelmingly what we have in common. But our media, the outside media, always plays up the differences. When rabbis give sermons, they talk about the differences, not about the unity of the Jewish people. Is this something that would be within the realm of the Conference of Presidents? Or are we talking about creating a new organization to deal with the education of our world? Well, first of all, the conference exists only for that purpose of bringing together, it was uh, John Foster Dulles, not a friend of the Jewish community, who in the 1950s essentially told the five or six groups at the time, get your act together. And out of that emerged the President's Club, and then in 1959, the conference, and now it's 51 organizations. 
but that's the very essence of, of our being. We do not deal in domestic and, in, and even in educational pro, pro education per se, but we do educational programs. But uh, I know that there are a number of key leaders who have been thinking about this and preparing to put significant money into it. Then COVID came, so it sort of set it back, but I hope it'll be revived that they recognize, even though their own children didn't get a Jewish education, they realize that this is the future, that that's the key to the future for everybody. And, you know, with the proportion of the religious community growing and growing, they, they look at it and they say, we did something wrong. And, and that is, so that's the light that we have to keep our eye out for, for those leaders to come together and make a dif- make, help make that difference. And to say to them that, you know, it's very nice to support museums and other institutions and, and universities. I'm nothing against it. They should do it. But at the same time, look inward to the community. And, you know, there were people in Chicago who led efforts, you know, to have money set aside. And now there is the, this program to have people designate that their wealth, a significant portion committed to, and their children commit to giving it to Jewish causes. Because so much of the wealth of the Jewish community is being dissipated and misdirected by the next generation, which was not Jewishly educated, and give it often to anti-Jewish causes or, or identify with them. So we have to do much more to understand the next generation, to, to involve them, to excite them, to inspire them. There are individuals, you know, one of the things, this very intensive study we did a number of years ago was that uh, we send baseball players, movie stars, people, cultural figures, icons to Israel, because when they come back and say, guys, this is the most amazing visit I had. This is no apartheid state. And, you know, a, a giant football player says, hey, guys, you got it all wrong. This is no apartheid state. It means more than if I or a hundred more like me say. And, and we are working on having, restarting that, which obviously got killed during COVID. But we saw the impact when these people come back and they say, and young people listen to them. So we have to find more and more of these kind of figures that young people uh, listen to. We also cannot write off significant segments of the community. I think that there are parts of the political community, let's say, of the political echelon in America. We're not going to get them, and I don't waste time on them, including the squad. But I do think that the vast majority of the Democratic Party remains supportive of Israel. We should not write them off. We shouldn't write off the evangelical community. We have to work with everybody. We need all the allies we can get. It doesn't mean that it's a blank check, that if somebody missionizes or somebody engages in hostile comments about Jews that we just whitewash it. No, we have to isolate the bad guys and build with the good guys. And I believe still overwhelmingly the American people are good guys. They want to be with us. They, they support Israel they, and, and every poll shows it. And moving over for a moment now to uh, Secretary of State's visit to Israel and now to Egypt. One of the comments that some people were surprised about was his was the president's decision and his discussions about helping to rebuild Gaza uh, and that that will strengthen the Palestinian Authority and not strengthen Hamas. With your background, would you agree with that assessment? I think that we have to face the reality that the international community is reluctant, but uh, anxious to see Gaza rebuilt. They, they don't want to put money where they see it's just going to be destroyed again and again. Uh, but this time, for the first time, I see serious efforts not to let Hamas control the money. Even Hamas leaders today said, 
you know, we understand it'll go, we're not taking any of that money, it'll go to rebuild. But we know that it's fungible. We know that the cement that ends up building this hundreds of miles of, of tunnels, and they claim today that, that a very small portion of it was destroyed. We know that much more was done. But the, the fact that Sinar walks out and, and is standing is, is to them a victory, and they are, uh, you know, advertising it as, as widely as they can. But we shouldn't be fooled. Israel, the Israel army did a great job. They had great intelligence. But you can't wipe it out if you're not carpet bombing. And Israel doesn't do it. And Israel does do pinpoint bombing. And even the head of UNRWA said it. And now he, back, he apologized for saying it because it sounded like he was saying something nice about Israel. And God forbid they wouldn't do that. Um, so if, if the right conditions, in other words, if the building... The money that goes in, and as was the case with the Qatari money, supposedly, and others that Israel approved in the past, if it's monitored, and Israel is insisting on this, and, and Blinken, Secretary Blinken, made reference and said that they would make sure the money does not go for that. They want to empower the PA over Hamas. And as we know, you know, the election was postponed in the West Bank and in Gaza because the fear that they were going to lose to Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, uh, and it's also very divided in the Basque who's in his 17th year of his four-year term, um, is not interested really in having an election because he knows the outcome. So the, the, um, the question is not about rebuilding. The question is how it's going to be done, how you control it, uh, how do you uh, make sure that none of the money ends up in anything but what was promised, which means that they have to follow every bag of cement. You have to follow every dollar that goes in to assure that it doesn't end up then rebuilding Hamas. And the same thing, by the way, the great danger is that Iran gets the money again and they start uh, pouring money back. They, with, they withheld money from Hamas Hezbollah because they were being hurt by the sanctions. If, uh, if we give them all those tens of billions of dollars again, you can be sure it's flowing into the wrong hands. Are you, are, are we, should we be resigned to the fact that the United States will re-enter the agreement in some fashion or? Is there still hope that we'll be able to keep a certain position where we're not helping Iran? So um, it, it, there's still a lot of question marks. I, I read the Iranian press and I talk to people in Iran, officials all the time. Um, they are very concerned because they don't want to see the Supreme Leader more empowered and the you know, IOGC and the Supreme Leader control 40% of the economy. And if tens of billions of dollars come in, first it goes to them, then it goes to the, they owe their clients from the Houthis and the, um, the Hezbollah and others tens of billions of dollars and for their own purposes. Their economy is in ruins. People, unemployment is very high. The people though are willing to accept this if it would mean getting rid of this regime. There's a presidential election coming up in a few weeks. There are no people who say, well, this hardliner and more moderate, nobody's a moderate. It's only a degree of hardline, and they all have to be approved by Guardian Council. So no, nothing's going to change there that's going to bring some sort of an enlightened regime until the West helps the people in the country bring about the change that is possible. There were 6,000 demonstrations last year. There were massive uh, actions on campuses and throughout the country, and by especially by the more peripheral group. Farsis only make up half of the population, and the others are very disenchanted. So... We have to make sure that we don't enable Iran to pour in money again, that uh, there be an understanding with Egypt, with Qatar, with everybody else, so that we keep Turkey out, which is also today rivaling Iran in terms of its, it, its Shia, its Sunni equivalent to the Shia Iranians. 
He's building 17,000 mosques around the world. He threatens to destroy Israel. He's, you know, paying for those demonstrations on Al-Aqsa, meaning Erdogan. So we have two countries that are, are competing and moving in this direction, and they're in line, link many times with China and Russia on economic and many other grounds. They've expanded a military outreach throughout the region. So Gaza is very pivotal in this. And if Hamas wins, that means that threatens Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE, every country that is facing an Islamist insurrection today will be emboldened by, the, the, these forces will be emboldened by it. If we can shift a moment, you've had amazing life experiences, meeting people and doing things. Who are the one or two most amazing people you've had a chance to interact with, work with, or meet over, the, over your illustrious career? Well, one of the first was Scoop Jackson, Henry Jackson, Senator Jackson, who was a political mentor of mine and I love very much and one of the great figures. Unfortunately, he died young and he uh, didn't reach his aspiration of being president, which we would all like to see. Um, there are people who don't fit into this category that, that you're thinking of, like the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Belzer Rebbe, Rev Steinman, who were all amazing influences and people uh, I have, I don't even have words to describe them and their influence. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting some of the most amazing people whose names are not known, who are the true heroes to me, people who gave up their jobs and their lives to work for Soviet Jews uh, during the 70s when we had the movement, people who really devote themselves to Eretz Yisrael at any cost and to, to support it. These are the unsung heroes. They're not the names that appear in the press, but are the ones who really help make the miracles possible. And I'm inspired each time by that to look at these kind of people and, and see the true commitment, the true, uh, the essence of these people is their love of the Jewish people and the love of the Jewish state. I, I could go through many other people. I've met old presidents. I've met many of the world leaders. Uh, some of them are really good people. Some of them are pretty bad people. Um, you know, I sat with Assad for three hours, I meet with Erdogan, I've met with Putin, I've met with uh, so many others over the years. Uh, one of the things that people always ask is, do you wear yarmulke when you meet them? And the answer is yes, because they respect me more, as one Arab leader said, because you know who you are. And he said, and the fact that you wear yarmulke, because I, I asked him, why, do you, why are you coming to me? Why did you ask to meet with me of all people? And, and that is their answer, that they respect us if we respect ourselves, if we stand up for principle. I don't waffle on what I say. I'm very direct with them. And you've been at meetings, you know, that uh, th that doesn't gain you anything. You don't gain th their trust even. But if they see that you're honest and you're, you're straightforward, then they feel that they can trust you. And if you don't leak, which is another big thing. So I would say that, um, you know, I, I've, I've met all the leaders in Israel over the last uh, four decades. Some of them are really special people. Uh, I have respect for the military, for the, especially for the soldiers who, who give the risk their lives. And I've seen them do unbelievable things for the Jewish people and their real commitment and love for their fellow Jews. So there are, I've been privileged to see really the best of our community uh, over the years. And then one final question, because our time is almost up. You mentioned that you started your political activism at 10 years old. What happened at 10? 
I, I joined the political campaign of Senator Clark in Philadelphia. And I snuck in when Adlai Stevenson was running for president, and I was 11, I think. I snuck into his hotel suite, and they, he saw me, and he took me in, and he had me camp, join him on the campaign trail where I met all the leaders of the Democratic Party. But I had a chance to talk to him about the things I cared about. And I told him about my grandparents who had all been killed and about the, the, um, what motivated me as a little kid. You know, no, kids don't normally do these things. Um, but I, I was very privileged. I was born at a young age. I was able to start organized. I organized the North American Union of Jewish Students. I organized many things long before I even got to college. And when I was in college, uh, continued. And as I said, it's my shared. Believe me, I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. Godish Baruch Hu gave me a calling. He didn't give me many talents, honestly. I can't sing, write, dance, do many things. <laughs> But he gave me a few talents, and I am, Baruch Hashem, privileged to be able to use them in the thing I care about most. All of the lay leaders, you know, have daytime jobs, as they tell me, and they have to do all of this part-time. I'm privileged, really honored to be able to do it full-time, what I care most about. And then I have to live up to that, and I feel I have a contract with him. And as long as I live up to my 70 hours a week or 80 hours a week, he'll keep me going. And Baruch Hashem, you know, I've been doing it a long, long time. And I have still the kach and the energy to continue, and I still work 18-hour days. But I'm afraid if I start slacking off, he'll say, okay, you did your job, but now. So <laughs> now comes time to honor you and move on. <laughs> well, I am great, grateful, and all of Klal Yisrael is grateful of the fact that you picked up the phone when HaKadosh Baruch Hu called, right. and that you should continue to have strength at Me'avastrim as you lead us forward. And I thank you so very much for your time today. This has been a wonderful opportunity to, to learn from you and to schmooze. It's so my thank pleasure. you very, very much. And your Chicago accent doesn't interfere. I understood every word. <laughs> Almost every word. <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, you're welcome.